This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Ed Young discusses his book, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. Then PW contributing editor Claire Swanson explores how regional cookbook authors become national celebrities. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We've got a new number one, two, and three on the fiction list, hardcover, so I'll start with that. All right. Uh, At number one is Bullseye by James Patterson and Michael Ledwidge. Um, Patterson's name gets any book to the top of the bestseller Mm. list. Um, It's pretty much guaranteed. So it's number one with a bullet, 35,000 and some change copies sold in the first week out. Very respectable. This is the ninth book in the Michael Bennett it uh, international thriller series, and uh, in this case, it's looking at tensions between America and Russia, which in this setting are the highest they've been since the Cold War. Mm. And uh, there's a team of assassins uh, prowling the streets and targeting the president of the United States. So we don't have a review of this, but uh, it seems likely that anyone who's uh, been into this Michael Bennett series so far will want to pick up this installment. Right. That's at number one. And at number two is Sweet Tomorrows by Debbie McComber. Um, she's also a perennial bestseller. Uh, our review of this is just about to come out. It's not out yet, but this is the conclusion to the Rose Harbor series, um, mm. which is a, a lovely sort of misty-eyed small town series um, full of good feelings and happiness and coziness and warmth. Um, one of those books, uh, I mean, you know, it's got this sort of summer cover of a, a hammock and under the stars, but um, that's also one to keep and reread maybe in the winter when you're feeling you're a little right. down. She's, her oh, books right. are always so cheerful. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that wraps up the Rose Harbor series set in the little town of Cedar Cove. Mm. And uh, at number three, we have The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. And specifically, we have the Oprah's Book Club edition of it. It was supposed to be coming out in October, and the publisher moved it up to September. since they found out Oprah was going to pick it. Right. Um, And uh, so Oprah's name is enough to sell 17,000 copies. And obviously, um, Colson Whitehead is hardly an unknown and uh, does very well all all by himself. Um, We gave this one a starred review, and uh, it's a, a fascinating bit of sort of surrealist alternate history in which the Underground Railroad of the early 19th century is an actual literal subterranean tunnel with tracks, trains, and conductors. Uh, and we, we say that uh, the train ferries runaways into darkness and occasionally into light. The story is literature at its finest and history at its most barbaric. And the review says, would that this novel were required reading for every American citizen. So uh, you can expect to see this one on a lot of award shortlists. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, Coulson's, book. and Coulson's been getting, I, I mean, just that first week that, that it pubbed, uh, it was getting so much uh, 
coverage everywhere, newspapers, uh, magazines, and this is actually one of the ones that I plan to read on my summer vacation uh, in two more weeks. Excellent. Well, um, <laughs> it, from the looks of it, you'd be able to find it in any airport bookshop you look in. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's true. And uh, you know, that's a great thing for a work of literature. Yeah. Uh, moving down the list a little bit, number seven, we have Dark Carousel by Christine Fian. This is the 30th book, not one three, that's three zero in uh, the Dark series, the Carpathian series of vampire novels. Um, it's very difficult to say anything about a series book that far into the series. Uh, new readers are not likely to pick this one up. Um, fans of the series certainly are. And uh, they've been in hardcover for quite some time and people just buy one after the next, after the next, after the next. She's got a very devoted following. Um, moving on to number eight is Smooth Operator with Stuart Woods and Parnell Hall. Uh, Woods is a bestseller. Hall is a finalist for the Edgar Award. And uh, they team up in this testosterone-fueled thriller, which uh, our review says that it's an action-packed start to a separate series within the larger Stone Barrington arc. Uh, he's familiar as the mm. recurring protagonist of Woods' books. So this is sort of a, a tie-in series or a branching-off series, not quite a spin-off. And our review says that fans of the original series will find this one delightful. Um, a little bit further down, uh, this is really a good week for science fiction and fantasy. We, at number 14, we have Dragon Mark by Sherilyn Kenyon. Uh, this is another long-running series, her Dark Hunter series. This is book number 26. And uh, there's, it's again, it's very difficult to sort of summarize the world that's been built up over 26 books. But um, it's a, really a tremendous effort of writing and uh, a, a tremendous work mm. and um, Kenyon has abundant fans uh, who are happy to pick up anything that she writes so this is not one for new readers but uh, those who've been following the Dark Hunter series will be pleased to see another installment Great. coming out and then finally, down toward the bottom of the list, we have The Swarm by Orson Scott Card and Aaron Johnston. Um, they're together fl fleshing out the early years leading up to the events of Ender's Game, which is Card's mega, mega bestseller. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this trilogy is uh, covering basically the background information, the uh, what happened before uh, Ender's Game. And so this one is a sequel to Earth Awakens and... Uh, our review says that despite it being a military piece at heart, the action is often overshadowed by long explorations of scientific developments, discussions of morality and philosophy, and bureaucratic obstructions. And the whole story takes place on a solar system-wide scale. The numerous plot threads unspooling at a leisurely speed while still maintaining tension. Great. So for fans of space opera, um, and especially fans of the Ender's Game and subsequent books, um, then this is one to pick up. Great. Excellent. And finally, at number 25, Crowned and Dangerous by Reese Bowen. We gave this a starred review. It's uh, the 10th Royal Spinous Mystery, set in late 1934. Our review says it's outstanding. Uh, and there's a little bit of romance added into this blend of Agatha Christie and P.G. Woodhouse uh, for a stylish head-scratcher of a whodunit. Colorful set pieces and larger-than-life characters enrich the clever plot, which enchants and satisfies while forwarding the series arc. So uh, definitely one for the historical mystery yeah. fans there. Yeah, great. Well, you got quite a few on there. Yeah, there's a lot going on, and it looks like there's a lot in hardcover nonfiction as well. Yeah, I was actually, yeah, like I said, particularly excited about the Colson Whitehead. So mm -hmm. um, uh, not surprised, again, this uh, week, you know, books on politics and presidents dot our bestseller list. 
Starting with number one, this one's by Glenn Beck, Liars, How Progressives Exploit Our Fears for Power and Control. Uh, I think the subtitle says it all. Number six, uh, a little bit of uh, fitness here called Spartan Fit, exclamation point, 31 days, transform your mind, transform your body, commit to grit. No Gym Required by Joe DeSena with John Durant. And um, we, we say in a review in this inspiring fitness manual, DeSena outlines a plan for readers to reach peak performance levels, urging them to get off the couch, put down the French fries, and abandon the normal of activity. So uh, that's at number six. Number 11, this is one, another one that's been getting a lot of uh, news Uh Jeffrey Tubin, hmm. always on the bestseller list. American Heiress, uh, the wild saga of the kidnapping, crimes, and trial of Patty Hearst. Uh, in our review, we say Tubin, who's the New Yorker staff writer and uh, CNN senior legal analyst, provides another definitive and nuanced look at a notorious crime case. This time, the 1974 abduction of heiress Patty Hearst in San Francisco by the Symbionese Liberation Army. And um, uh, again, he's been on radio shows and um, that's at number 11 uh, number 15 a memoir by Penn Gillette magician presto how I made over a hundred pounds disappear and other magical tales uh, so there's that uh, number 19 uh, the Making of Donald Trump. This is by David K. Johnston, who is the uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter. Uh, and here, uh, we don't have a review of this, but uh, he takes a, a close look at the mogul's rise to power and prominence. And then number 20, uh, this is by John Dickerson, who's the uh, moderator for uh, Face the Nation. It's called Whistle Stop, My Favorite Stories from Presidential Campaign History. So uh, a little bit of nostalgia right there for, for any like of those. Yeah, yeah, it does actually. And finally, number 22, The Southern Education of a Jersey Girl, Adventures in Life and Love in the Heart of Dixie by Jamie Primax Sullivan, who's the, uh, we don't have a review of this one, uh, but uh, according to publicity, outspoken star of Bravo TV's Jersey Bell offers a no-nonsense Southern-spun advice for navigating life and love with her signature charismatic Jersey charm in this winning fish-out-of-a-water tale. So that's what we got. That's quite a list. Yeah. Yep. Big exciting things are happening as yeah. we're getting into fall. Yeah, yeah, we're, but we're going to see the nonfiction list dominated by uh, political books all the way through that. November. All the way through November. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ed Young tells us about the microbes we host in our bodies. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Arthur Lubell. I am the author of *The Artist Portrait of a Photographer*, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Ed Young on the line. His new book is I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. Hi, Ed. I'm so glad you could join us. Hi, Rose. Glad to be here. So let's talk about these microbes. I think we all sort of are aware that we've got a lot of little organisms living inside us, but... Uh, Come on, blow our minds with this. How, how, many, how many are there? What are they doing? Okay, so in the average human body, there are around 37 trillion bacteria and other microbes, which is roughly one for each one of our own human cells. So um, at most, I am just half the person who I think I am. 
Um, and these microbes are not just um, passengers or hitchhikers. They are really crucial parts of our lives. They help us to digest our food. They protect us from disease. They help to build and calibrate our immune systems. They shape and sculpt our organs. It's possible they might even influence our behavior. They touch every aspect of our biology. Um, and my contention with the book is that we cannot really understand our lives or those of the entire animal kingdom if we don't also understand our partnerships with microbes because it turns out that, that our lives are built in partnership, in negotiation with these tiny hidden organisms that live in us and on us. So now that we, uh, we know we're only half who we think we are, uh, tell, us how, tell us how these microbes do form the other half. Uh, so in all sorts of ways, um, as I said, they, they sculpt and shape our organs. So they, if you look at, um, animals that have no microbes that are raised in sterile environments, um, they have all sorts of problems. Their, their bones, their blood vessels, uh, their guts, their immune systems, all of these develop um, in poor shape. And that's because we rely on microbial signals to stimulate the growth of different parts of our body and to help them mature into their, their adult form. We know that microbes help to calibrate the immune system. They, they build different parts of uh, different groups of immune cells and then um, calibrate them so that they are responsive to infections, but also not overreactive. So they don't go berserk at um, benign things in the world around us like pollen or dust. Um, and we know, we're starting to realize that, um, that the microbes in the human body um, are deeply involved in a range of health conditions, everything from um, obesity and malnutrition to diabetes to inflammatory bowel disease. So many of these um, uh, health problems that we think of as just the province of individuals um, have this microbial influence too. And um, if we go beyond us to, to look at the broader animal kingdom, some of the, the uh, dependencies that animals have on microbes go even further. We have um, squid that have glowing bacteria inside their bodies that camouflage them from predators by cancelling out their silhouettes. We have um, deep sea animals, worms and shellfish that have no mouths or guts. They rely entirely on the microbes in their body to provide them with energy. And even familiar creatures like cows or goats or sheep get something like 70% of their energy from the microbes in them, which help them to digest the otherwise indigestible fibers in the plants that they eat. So everywhere we see that the entire animal kingdom, all of our lives, everything that all the biology that we're familiar with in zoos or natural history programs, all of that is built on this microbial foundation. So um, germ theory was revolutionary, like the whole concept of there being these tiny little organisms that we couldn't see. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, sort of the first thing we did was to attack them, was to see them as bad things to that were causing us harm. And uh, we had the whole antibiotic revolution, which has saved countless lives. But it sounds like we maybe went a little too far. Mm, yeah, I, I think so. Um, both both practically and culturally i mean cu culturally we come to we've come to associate microbes um uh, with death disease um dirt they are things that we want to get rid of their presence is a sign of filth or, or imminent um imminent pestilence 
But that's not true. The vast majority of microbes are either benign or beneficial to us. And by by being a bit too gung-ho in our attempts to remove them from our lives, from our bodies, via antibiotics, from our um, surroundings, with antibacterial everythings, um, we have we might be setting ourselves up for, for problems. Now, obviously, as you say, antibiotics have been an enormous health good. But I think our over-reliance on, on sanitation, on, on cleaning everything to, um, to within an inch of, of its life, Means that we are, we lack exposure to the microbes that, um, that were once thriving parts of our bodies. So, um, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that without that exposure at an early age, our immune systems grow up unprepared to, to face the outside world. They are, they become twitchy. Um, they, they start uh, reacting far too vigorously to benign things in the world around them and even to our own microbes. And maybe that's why we are seeing such large spikes in the incidence of inflammatory diseases and autoimmune diseases and allergies um, in the Western world over the last several decades. Um, so I think that's that's just one sign of how much we depend on microbes in order to to um, shape our health and to uh, and to protect us from illness rather than just causing it. I know that uh, Americans are, are obsessed. You were you were just talking about this with the antibacterial wipes and 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 the uh, gels. Uh, I don't know if this is the same thing in in the UK and throughout Europe, but but uh, these were you were saying that we we limit our defenses. Is this something that that we do just daily, or is this something that will affect mostly our kids who we've had grow up without squeaky clean environments, or is this some sort of evolutionary thing? Uh, well, that's a really good question. So. Um, a bit of everything. Um, it seems that um, exposures in, at a very early point in life are important because that's when um, the immune system is starting to develop and starting to set itself. Um, and you know, we we see in extreme cases, like um, in cases of uh, like malnourishment, for example, in in the developing world, that um, kids whose microbes don't, whose microbial communities don't mature at the the right age, who end up with a microbiological age that's less than their biological one have immune problems. Their problems digesting their food. They they end up malnourished. They have kind of they have a lot of different health problems. Um, it, whether whether our um, whether an over reliance on antibacterials and sanitation is affecting our health as adults is hard to say, but. You know, let's think about things ecologically. As I've said, like we we are home to all these microbes. We are we are each of us an ecosystem, just like a rainforest or a, or a coral reef. And if we remove um, the if we remove the species that normally live on us, we create vacancies. We create openings that potentially more dangerous species, those that do cause disease, could take up and fill. Um, and evolutionarily, that's that's one of the big questions. We know that the diversity of microbes in the human body seems to have um, shrunk over time. So apes like gorillas and chimpanzees have more microbes, a wider range of microbes in them than, say, hunter-gatherers, who have more microbes than people who live in rural communities, who have more than people who live in urban communities. 
So there's been this winnowing over time. And I think the big question now is whether that is a problem or not. So some people would say that it is, that we are losing some of these old friends who do us good. Others would say that we have compensated for their loss in different ways. It's just like, you know, we more people are, are short-sighted now than they used to, but then we have glasses and contact lenses. So it's not much of a problem. So it, it's 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 still a line of active research. What what that narrowing means for our health, and and um, what we might be able to do about it. But I think the really important thing for us to bear in mind just right now is is that microbes aren't our enemies. You know, they're they're not necessarily our friends either, but they are just an important part of the world around us. And if we just try and destroy them because we see them as villains, we might be setting ourselves up for a fall. You had mentioned earlier uh, about the the, you know, the role might you know bacteria might play uh, might influence an organism's propensity, say for obesity, but or even in in autism. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I know we were just talking about the the, the good roles that they could play, but what about this? So, um, with, with obesity, for example, there have been many studies showing that, uh, obese and lean individuals, whether humans or lab mice, whatever, have different communities of bacteria in their guts. Now, that doesn't mean that those communities are causing, um, you know, are making us fat or whether it's the other way around. But there have certainly been studies where you've taken, P scientists have taken the microbiomes of, um, fat mice and implanted them into those that lack microbes of their own. And those mice then put on more weight than if you'd say implanted them with the microbes from a lean mouse. And that certainly suggests that um, the microbes in our gut can affect the way we process nutrients in our food and, and how and how we how we transform that into into body fat. Um, and that makes sense. Now, the extent to which that matters for rising levels of obesity are unclear. What we can do about that is unclear. Um, and the same goes for something like autism. So again, um, there have been illustrative studies done in mice where, you, where scientists have found um, microbes that tamp down the, uh, in the immune system that reduce inflammation. And in some cases, when they've put those microbes into rodents, the rodents have shown reduced levels of symptoms that are similar to those you see in people with autism. So less repetitive behaviors, less, um, more, more, uh, more tendency to sort of explore new things, um, more, uh, like a little bit more social boldness. Um, now, there are massive caveats here, of course. Mice are not humans. Mice do not have autism. Autism is a human uh, social construct that's also affected by our views of what is normal. Um, but I think that the critical thing to take away from this is that our microbiome can affect our health. Our microbiome can affect our minds and our behavior. Um, and perhaps manipulating uh, the microbes inside us will allow us to um, influence some of um, some of the symptoms that are related to, to poor health. But that's still something that's being looked at at the moment. It's something for the future rather than something we're on the cusp of doing right now. So this is basically the the state of the art right now that you're talking about in this this uh, these studies of just what the microbes do and how they affect us. Um, have there been studies sort of going further than that and and talking about um, how we can make use of them? I know there have been trial products that are like 
you know, spray on bacteria that will be good for your skin and things like that. Um, what, what's happening on the, on the treatment side? Yeah, a lot of them, a lot of these things are very, very early. So, but like probiotics have been around for a very long time. And although they seem to be very good for infectious diarrhea, they are rather underwhelming for most other conditions. Um, and certainly regulatory agencies have taken a dim view of a lot of the health claims that surround these products. There's another treatment um, which is a little gross and certainly very unorthodox. Um, it's called a fecal transplant, which is exactly what it sounds like. So you take stool from a healthy donor and implant it into a sick donor in order to solve medical problems. And the, the specific problem that this has been used for and very successfully is infection with a microbe called C. diff. Clostridium difficile. It's a very, it's a very weedy type of bacterium that can cause um, severe, recurring, and often fatal bouts of diarrhea. Um, and C. diff uh, fecal transplants have been amazingly successful at curing C. diff. Um, in one clinical trial, uh, standard antibiotics cured something like twenty-seven percent of patients, whereas fecal transplants cured like ninety-four percent. That being said, it's then, it's, you know, based on that success, it's been tested on a lot of other conditions like inflammatory bowel disease or diabetes or whatnot, but with much more inconsistent results and lower success rates. So even when you take an entire community of microbes from one person and shove it into another, it's hard to, to reset that ecosystem. In principle, it's a bit like trying to re-turf a lawn that's been overgrown with dandelions and, and, you know, you get this lovely fresh, uh, field of grass. But doing that in practice is very difficult. We need to understand, um, you know, how these microbes establish themselves. What, what factors allow them to grow in a new environment? How do they interact with each other, with their hosts, with our, with the native microbes that we already have in the, in our guts, um, and these are the big questions that I think will move the study of the microbiome forward and, and advance its use um, to, in in medicine. But we're such we're so much at the early stages of this, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write. I contain multitudes to give people a sense of the potential, but also to to get a give a very rigorous view of where we stand now and what people should or shouldn't believe about the things that they're reading about this incredibly fascinating and, um, and fashionable area of science. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Ed Young, the author of I Contain Multitudes. Um, he's telling us fascinating stuff about microbiomes, the, uh, the microorganisms that live in our bodies. So what are these core takeaways that you want people to have when they, when they read your book, when they think about this very, very early science and where it might go? 
So I want them to think of um, microbes not as uh, not as villains, not as things they must kill, but as crucial parts of our lives. I want people to realize that if they go to a zoo, um, every creature in that zoo is a zoo in their own right. Um, I want them to understand that when they look in a mirror and see themselves, they're not just looking at an individual, but as an entire community, as as a as an entire world, or even a series of different worlds. Um, and one of the things I really want to do with the book is to show people just how how wondrous even the most familiar parts of our lives can be if we look at them through this microbial lens. So one really good example, one of my favorite stories from the book involves um, breastfeeding. And breastfeeding is is a very familiar thing. You know, we've either all done it or taken part in it or seen people do it. But um, it's actually very complicated. A breastfeeding mother looks like she's just nourishing a child, but actually about 10% of breast milk consists of these sugars that the baby cannot digest. They are there to nourish microbes in the baby's gut, and specifically one particular strain um, called B. infantis, which has evolved specifically to um, eat these sugars with great efficiency. And in return, it feeds the baby's gut cells. It shores up the lining of the gut to stop it from leaking. It um, quenches inflammation to train the baby's immune system. So what we have um, in, in breastfeeding is that a mother isn't just nourishing her infant, but also infantis. She is building an entire world. She's setting up a world inside her child. And that world is in turn setting up the baby. Um, so it's this wonderful um, symbiosis between human bacterium that's that with milk as the as the the connecting force between them and and I think it's such an interesting way of looking at this thing that we all take for granted um, you talked about antibiotics before and I just want to say what what needs to change in how we use antibiotics uh, factoring both the microbiome and the rise as you said in antibiotic resistant bacteria Mm-hmm. So, um, antibiotics, fortunately, the answer is actually the same for both of those things. Um, yeah. the, the answer is that we need to stop overusing them. So we need more judicious use of antibiotics. Um, these, these substances have done so much for us. They have saved countless lives. Um, but they also have collateral damage. An antibiotic is, is an, an unsubtle weapon. It's like more like, it's like a nuke rather than a sniper's bullet. Um, it destroys the bacteria that we rely upon as well as the ones that are doing us harm. Um, so by using them more carefully, um, I'm not saying, uh, you know, let's demonize antibiotics and stop using them altogether, but by using them more carefully, we can avoid um, causing too much harm to our microbiome when we don't need to. And we will also forestall the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacteria because it is um, the, the, um, the wanton use of these drugs is one of the factors that's fueling the rise of microbes um, that can resist almost all of the, the things that we throw at them. Um, so, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a win-win. If we use them more carefully, we, we solve two big problems in one stroke. You just mentioned about this book, but tell us more about how this book came to you. Um, so I have been um, writing about science and about this particular topic for about 10 years. 
Um, and it's, it's one of my favorite things to write about because it does so greatly change, um, the way I see the world. And it reveals the world as it truly is, as a, a planet dominated by and ruled by microbes and that we just happen to be living in. And I think it gives, you know, I said in the, in the subtitle that it gives us a grander view of life. And, and I truly believe that. I think it, it shows how interconnected we are to the rest of the world around us. Um, and, and I think that this area is full of amazing stories. And that's what I wanted to portray in the book. Um, I wanted to tell the stories about the scientists who work in this field. And there's such, uh, there's such a great bunch of characters. You know, there's an Australian scientist who's been trying to load, um, a bacterium into mosquitoes to beat diseases like dengue fever for the mm. last, he's been doing that for 25, 30 years. I mean, the amount of dedication it takes to do that. Um, so I tell his story. I tell the story about, uh, uh, scientists who have studied these, uh, squid with glowing bacteria in them. Those who've looked at, um, a the aphids that destroy our crops and the bacteria that provide them with nutrients. Um, the ones who've looked at obesity and malnutrition, uh, among humans that they, um, for first and foremost, the, my, the study of the microbiome is a very human story. There are so many great narratives in this field um, about very intelligent, very passionate, um, very curious and eccentric people. And I wanted to get that across. You, let's step into the future for a little bit. You talk about the possibility of artisanal bacteria that could be designed to perform specific tasks. And it sounds like that's what this guy is trying to do with the uh, mosquitoes, for example. Tell us a little bit more about that and about maybe the, the pros and cons of that. So with the mosquitoes, um, what we're doing there is to install a very, very common bacterium called Wolbachia into um, the species of mosquito that spread diseases like dengue and Zika. Um, and the reason we're doing that is that um, Wolbachia stops the mosquitoes from spreading the viruses behind these diseases. And it also happens to be really good at spreading through a wild population. So if you release small numbers of these mosquitoes, the bacterium will spread to those the rest of the wild population and turn the entirety of the entire lot of them into um, into dengue proof or Zika proof insects. Um, so you're not killing any of the insects; you're just stopping them from being agents of disease. You're turning them into dead ends for the viruses. Now. Um, the other thing you asked about is, is different. So actually engineering microbes in order to um, solve health problems, that, that is a different thing. And I think something that is being in just the very earliest stages of investigation. So some scientists are trying to build microbes, that genetically engineered microbes that could, for example, um, detect early signs of cancer and release um, cancer drugs or those that could spot signs of inflammation and calm it down. Um, the, you know, these applications, I think, will, will be really interesting in the future, but we're still in a very early stage of being able to manipulate biology to that extent. And of course, the prospect of doing so makes people very nervous. Um, it should be far less nerve-wracking to actually take naturally occurring bacteria and turn them into probiotics. And as I said, um, probiotics are, are a little underwhelming, but that's because they largely rely on very heavily 
industrialized and often proprietary strains of microbes that aren't very good at taking up shop in the gut. Um, instead, we may do better by looking at very common species um, that uh, that are much better at colonizing the gut and to give them to people in in, in bigger numbers. Um, and that's something that a lot of scientists are looking at at the moment. They're trying to construct blends or cocktails of beneficial microbes that could solve conditions like inflammatory bowel disease and so on. Um, but you know, there's there's a lot of potential there, a lot of potential. But the the problem is that we're not just talking about you know the maths of the microbiome are, are very complicated. It's not just about saying here's a problem, I'm going to add this microbe, problem fixed. It this is an act of engineering an ecosystem, of shaping an entire world. And a lot of our attempts to do so are very basic and stumbling still, um, trying to actually, you know, when you give people um, these collections of microbes, it's really hard to predict, like, whether they'll actually stay in the body, what they will do, how well they will compete against the microbes that are really existing within us. Um, and I think those are the questions that we will need to answer if we're actually going to turn these um, treatments into successful ones. So I have this weird reaction to antibiotics, which is that when I take them, uh, I have mood effects. I get depressed or I get anxious or I, I get mm. panic attacks. Um, and I've been wondering since then about the effects of uh, bacteria of the microbiome on mental health. Mm. Do we have any kind of research in that direction? We do have quite a lot, but most of it, um, as as with many of these things, is uh, is in mice. Um, so we know that um, the microbiome in the gut can affect an animal's behaviour. We everything from its mood to um, its attitude to risk to its resilience to stress to its propensity for anxiety. Um, some of these early studies are very compelling, but a little bit inconsistent. So it's hard to you know it's it's hard to say like whether this microbe increases or decreases anxiety and so on. Um, there are some small preliminary studies suggesting that the same is true for humans, that the microbes in our, in our gut might affect our minds too. Um, but again, it's, it's hard to get precise answers because we're such an early stage in this field. Um, but it, you know, it makes sense. It is totally plausible. We know that um, there is a thing called the gut-brain axis, a line of communication between the gut and the brain. There are nerves that run between those two organs. The immune system can, can um, connect what's happening in the gut to what happens in the brain. Um, bacteria in the gut create neurotransmitters. They create things like do dopamine and serotonin, which are typically thought of as brain signaling chemicals. So th there is plenty of evidence to suggest that microbes could affect our behavior. How they do so is still um, a bit of a mystery, let alone how we might be able to manipulate our behavior by changing the microbes within us. You know, could we, could we affect, could we... Um, reduce some of the the um, symptoms of mental health problems like anxiety or depression by giving people um, specially formulated probiotics. Um, there are certainly psychiatrists and scientists who think that the answer is yes, um, probably not for really severe cases, but we might be able to do some good for, for milder symptoms. Um, but again, you know, this is a very, very active and emerging area of research. I think, you know, for a lot of people, it would just blow their minds full stop to realize that microbes could affect our minds. Um, the, the details, however, those are what we need to work out. 
What's your key to making science accessible to the layperson? You've got this book, you've got your blog, Not Exactly Rocket Science. Um, you're talking about some very complicated concepts. So um, when you're sitting down to write, what are you thinking about as uh, as a translator from scientist to the non-scientist? Well, I try and think about you know how much I knew about how much I knew when I was doing science at high school. So I so not not a huge deal. Um, that's sort of the the level I'm um, the level of education that I'm aiming for. But I think the key to, to really good science writing is um, to never um, overestimate your readers' knowledge, but to never underestimate their intelligence either. Like science can be complicated, sure, but it's never too complicated that you can't explain it to people. You know, and it shouldn't ever have to be. These are things that affect all of us, and there are things that I think could interest all of us and um and i think all you have to do is treat people with respect um you know uh, and uh and to convey just how exciting this is and it genuinely is exciting to me i think it is it, it is um it is something that truly changes my perspective of myself and the world around me and i really want to convey that to people who who read the book well, I'm certainly getting a sense of your enthusiasm. Is it is it wrong to say that it's infectious? <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. I'm I'm quite happy with puns. We've been talking with Ed Young, and you can find his book "I Contain Multitudes" in stores right now. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW contributing editor Claire Swanson talks about how regional chefs go national with cookbooks. Stay tuned. Yo, yo, what's up? I'm Daryl McDaniels, the author of 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Rah! I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW contributing editor Claire Swanson is here to tell us all about how regional cookbook authors can hit the big time. Hello, Claire. Hello, Mark. So in this, you, you talk about, uh, among other things, how editors or publishers can break out uh, a chef that doesn't have a national platform, you know, something more like more, maybe a regional chef. So tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, we spoke to cookbook publishers and editors um, on how they track down chefs from across the country who maybe have a local following through a restaurant or um, food writing in a certain city or town, but don't necessarily have a national platform. And so how they brought them to the national stage with a cookbook um, and sort of about the various things that went into acquiring the book, um, whether it was, you know, many of them said the element of story um, that came through through the food and, and through the background of the chef or the, the concept was key or um, kind of the built-in readership and fan base that the author had in, in their own um, in their own hometown. So there were lots of things that come into play. And um, yeah, we got to chat about a lot of different cuisines, you know, from across the country. So uh, tell us about one that, that they did break out, someone who you talked about who you, in the uh, feature. I think a really prominent one would be um, Michael Solomonov, mm -hmm. who is the chef at uh, Zahav in Philadelphia, which is, he's within the culinary world. He definitely has a platform. Um, he's a James Beard award-winning chef. Uh, he, you know... He, in the, in the food world, you would know him, but he wouldn't necessarily be a household name. 
um, Rux Martin at Rux Martin Books chatted with us about signing him up. And essentially, she heard about the restaurant um, through word of mouth from um, one of their reps who lived in Philadelphia and said, you've, you've got to try this place. And she said it felt like the whole house went down and they all went and had a meal. And she said that was, you know, that sealed the deal. And they signed him up and it was published. Um, the Zahav um, was published in October 2015 and it went on to win um, the James Beard Award for the book of the year as well as I think the book in the uh, the international category as well. So, you know, it was um, a regional chef in Philadelphia, um, and the book is about Israeli cooking, you know, talking about a regional cuisine, and it, it hit, you know, widespread. And she said she owed that, you know, in part to his chops. He's, you know, um, you know a celebrated chef, but he also has this sort of um, kind of incredible backstory that she thinks makes it easy to write about and, and draws people in. Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, when, when that book was coming out, I, uh, I remember reading Frank Bruni uh, had mm-hmm. a piece about him, and this is about his his uh, uh, his brother had died uh, in Israel, uh, had been killed, and uh, he himself became addicted to drugs, and this was kind of the story about him coming out of drugs and, and opening this restaurant with, with his business partner. Exactly. Uh, and so that got a lot of play. What, what else did, did Ruck say anything else about how, how they made it? Because it, it is true. I mean, he's respected by, uh, uh, other chefs. You know, he, as you said, he's known in the, uh, in the, in the, in the food world. Um, but he really was a local Philadelphia chef. Right. She thinks he, I mean, he was just embraced by the media because of his story and, 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 you know, because of what he'd achieved with his restaurant, with his cooking. You know, she also said that it didn't hurt that, um, Terry Gross, you know, her office was just down the street. And so he, you know, he got on NPR and he had, and a lot of, um, the editor spoke about that, um, that the local media sort of embraces their own. And, and that's really helpful in kind of pivoting to, um, a national audience. I mean, obviously, NPR has you know, you know, people listen across the country. But um, you know, getting your local newspaper or radio to to pay attention to a book, you know, to to kind of uh, push on their hometown heroes, it, it was helpful in the long run for getting national attention as well. Sure, and and you're right. I mean, he had the uh, the stuff to uh, back it all up. I mean, great food, and it really was a great cookbook. Uh, uh, I believe we gave it a star. So um, uh, so he had the goods. He did, indeed. So it wasn't a hard sell, right? Exactly, exactly. So, um, could you give us another example of of someone who came who didn't have a national platform? Sure. Um, there was an interesting um, from Agate Publishing in Chicago. They talked about um, uh, a food writer. She was actually a former um, a broadcaster. She comes from the journalism world, but she um, her name is Anupali Singla, and she has a had a book called uh, Indian Slow Cooker, mm-hmm. and it was one of it's been one of the publisher's perennial bestsellers. And they also, you know, found her through word of mouth. And she's she's certainly well known in Chicago for being on camera, but really has no presence in terms had no presence in terms of her um, food writing aside from those that kind of followed into her you know, what she was writing online. Um, and she felt an early embrace from the Chicago Tribune, which, you know, reviewed the book positively and, and, um, profiled her as well. So he, you know, and, and they had said that, um, being in Chicago actually helps them tap into these talents that might be overlooked. What, what he called a, um, 
and I'm sorry, this is uh, Doug Siebold talking at President and Publisher, um, what he calls kind of a, a general bias um, from the East and West Coasts to kind of to those authors, mm-hmm. whereas they're kind of sourcing from the Midwest and he finding finding all this sort of untapped um, talent. And he says that it, it, it continues to be a really well-selling cookbook for them and they're publishing, publishing further cookbooks from her. Right. And and so you said this is through Agate Publishing. Exactly. And so there was a discussion that we had about this, which was an interesting part of the of reporting this piece is, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages or does it matter, you know, uh, about both publishing a regional author and publishing from a region? So, you know, we spoke to Sasquatch in Seattle. And so, you know, are there advantages here? And and um, certainly, Sasquatch has said it's an uphill battle. You know, it can be it can be difficult to kind of break their Pacific Northwest authors on to the main stage. But on the other hand, they also know how to like work their own town, and that really works to their advantage. Maybe in a way that a big New York publisher wouldn't. Agate said that uh, you know, yeah, they had they had access to local talent, Midwest talent um, that maybe maybe wasn't you know going to make it off the submission pile in, in, in the big publishers. Right. And, and Michael Solomonov uh, was part of Houghton Mifflin. Uh, yep. So that was a big New York uh, publisher, one of the one exactly. of the bigger cookbook publishers. Did yep. you get a sense that maybe with the big publishers, they aren't necessarily looking for, for chefs with their own platform or at least a big platform that there's some advantage to kind of making a cookbook mm-hmm. author? Well, we spoke to um, Jenny Wapner at, at, at Ten Speed, and she had said um, that there are like there are handicaps in prom- in promoting a book if there's no um, you know established platform. But there's certainly advantages when it comes to editorial because mm-hmm. it gives it an edge. You know, it's sort of um, something from a region has its own has its own voice, a different voice that 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 sort of enhances the content right. in a certain way. And what books uh, uh, did Tensby talk about? So we chatted about um, Pools, which is actually an upcoming book. Right. Um, and that is Ashley Christensen of Pools Diner in Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, um, Wapner talked about the uh, the story that was, was, that was so essential, was essential component in acquiring this book because when Christensen opened the restaurant um, in 2007, Wapner says she sparked this sort of um, revitalization of the Raleigh area and has and since opened, I believe, six more restaurants. I think she's a, she owns seven total. Mm. Um, and so there was sort of this story about her um, revitalizing the area through this network of you know, vendors and farmers and chefs and diners. And, and in addition to what she's doing with Southern food, which, which Webner said is sort of elevating it, um, presenting meatless dishes, it, it all came together to, for this, this story. And that's pool that comes out in September. Right. Um, and then we also spoke about, of course, um, Franklin barbecue. Right. Um, when we spoke to Emily Timberlake, the editor on that book and she, uh, Timberlake owed the success of the book, for the most part, I mean, he, Aaron Franklin, who's the owner of Franklin Barbecue in um, Austin, it's it's a one of the most popular barbecue joints in America. But again, maybe not a you know a household name like someone with a, a TV show or you know a big national blog. Um, Timberlake believed that the book really launched him into the stratosphere, and that's because of the concept. It is. Something like it's 250 pages, 224 pages, but it really only has a dozen recipes. 
So she thinks that this barbecue book was unlike any book on the market. It just, it took a real um, deep dive into the mechanics of barbecue, you know, for the first five chapters. And, and that's what made people pick it up in addition to kind of the credibility that he had as a pit master. Right. And, and barbecue fanatics are fanatics and will pretty much dig that yes. kind of in-depth writing. And, yeah. and, and I, as an audience that you know exists out of, you know, off, out of the gate. Right. Exactly. And I completely see by what you and, and the editors said about, uh, how, having someone relatively unknown uh work on a cookbook i mean there's there's real chance for for great writing and new fun stuff there that you may not get with a well-known person uh yep. there's there's that mystery and when i see cookbooks coming in from people i don't know that that the you know where the recipes are good the writing is sharp um and and then of course the cookbook is is nicely designed i i i think that's great yeah exactly no, and it, you know they spoke to that as well. And Sasquatch talked about uh, Renee Erickson, um, whose debut cookbook, um, a "Boat, a Whale, a Walrus," mm-hmm. and came out, I believe, in 2014. Right. And you know she's the chef and owner of four of Seattle's most popular restaurants. But that book really hit worldwide again. He said for its design and um, for the attention that it received from the media, um, because people sort of were clamoring to hear from this new voice. Right, right, exactly, and I remember that cookbook. Well, so just looking a little bit beyond from from national to uh, international uh, cookbook authors, you you did a uh, sidebar to the feature. Just tell us a little bit about that, um, the the kinds of books that are maybe marketable in many more than one country. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah, we spoke to some editors who who brought in international authors. Um, and if we think there may be a handicap in in promoting, you know, an, an American author from the South, you know, what what are the the challenges when it comes to introducing someone from you know a, a global um, chef to um, an American audience? Um, we talked to um, Octopus Publishing, who is slowly and steadily introduced uh, the UK food writer Diana Henry, who's very well known in the UK. Um, but they sent her on her first author, U.S. author tour in um, 2015 um, mm-hmm. for A Bird in the Hand, which was actually her ninth book. So they really waited. They built her slowly and steadily and then um, doubled down when, when, she, when she sort of established an audience here. And um, they said that, you know, she's a Twitter maven, so she really promoted herself as well. But um, she slowly built up her, her um, U.S. following. Uh, and we also spoke to um, Fiden, which publishes a great deal of um, international authors. And they had said that really their strategy wasn't to look for someone who already had won awards, you know, who already had a platform. In fact, it was an advantage there to um, start early, um, find them before the awards come in, and and build a relationship there um, internationally. Yeah, and they've done great with that over the years. I mean, and they've got. I, I mean, just they're a wonderful publisher of of, of serious chefs, well known in their countries. That, yeah. and, and you're right, they do have a knack of breaking them out before uh, before they start getting the awards. Absolutely, it's interesting. You know, it's been said that publishing cookbooks abroad, either to the U.S. or out of the U.S., is is almost like publishing poetry. There's a certain kind of uh, taste uh, that people have, a very specific taste, and and the challenge is to is to you know, try and market or at least position the book, uh, or at least, pre- you know, deciding which authors to present internationally. Exactly. Yep. 
and they spoke to that too. You know, you, you have to be careful about it, but they also, you know, signed up authors that they believed in. Right. Exactly. So, um, any last, uh, thoughts that we didn't cover here? Uh, I think that the takeaway is that there's great food to be found from coast to coast and that the publishers aren't, you know, it's not all limited to the YouTube stars and the, you know, the top chefs and the uh, iron chefs that, that, um, there's people doing great things in, in every town and city. And, and really that's, it's, it's becoming a wellspring of, um, cookbook projects for publishers. Yeah. Doing well with it. I think it's great. Well, Claire, thank you so much. And uh, You're for those very of welcome. you, it was a pleasure. Those of you, our listeners, can go right to our website, uh, Publishers Weekly. Click on to the uh, that week's feature on cookbooks, and you'll see much more that Claire had to offer. Thanks, Claire. Always great to have you on the show. And now, a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Gretchen Bakke, author of The Grid, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 